people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules to What. My name is Alex, and today I'm going to be talking about Hindutva and Hindu nationalism, both in India and in the UK. Uh, I'm joined by Amadeep Dillon, is an editor at Red Pepper, a journalist, program director at TWT, and a bartender. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Um, so I guess um, what spurred this episode? I mean, we, we wanted to do an episode about the far right in India for a while. In our book, we kind of had a passing mention um, that you know a kind of more coherent form of fascism is is anywhere in the world. It's going to be forming in India um, with the kind of paramilitary stuff, the extrajudicial violence, and the increasingly authoritarian state. Um, but obviously, their recent events have, have kind of put this all into a bit more focus for us. I think, which is obviously the kind of I suppose in the Blair, Blairite term, terminology, it's this kind of intercommunity tensions or or violence in Leicester uh, between Hindu and Muslim uh, youth. Um, I mean, I mean, maybe just to catch people up if they haven't been, if they've forgotten or haven't been paying attention, what what did go down in in, in Leicester, in in your in your view? Yeah, so I guess um, if if you were kind of just like trying to find out what was going on without much background, you might get the sense that this was basically a kind of cricket match celebration gone wrong. Um, in actual fact, if you, if you if you kind of follow what's been happening in Leicester um, since the beginning of this year and a little bit earlier, um, it becomes clear that we're looking at something quite a lot more serious. Um, I think over, over the over the last year or so, there have been instances of attacks on um, Muslims um, by by groups of Hindu youth in Leicester, um, or at the very least, that's what's been alleged. Um, and like the local Muslim community in Leicester has been trying to raise, raise this with the council, raise with the police. Um, and it seems like this has kind of been escalating basically since the beginning of the year. And there have also been instances, um, I think, of kind of, you know, like uh, recriminatory violence, if you like. Um, what became clear towards the end of the summer was that there seemed to be an amping up of instances of targeted violence against Muslims by Hindus. Um, all of the kind of reports and um, all of the stuff I'm hearing on the ground is that like this isn't generally people from the local community in Leicester. Uh, Leicester is one of the largest South Asian communities um, in the country and, and it's you know very proud of its reputation for, um, for having a strong multiculturalism. Um, but what happened was that there, uh, after a cricket match there was there was some violence. It was actually I believe towards the, a sick man who was um, supporting the same team um, as the Hindus who attacked him, so that doesn't seem to have been an, an actual related um, a kind of cause, causal instance of, of violence or conflict. There have been multiple attacks on um, individual Muslims in Leicester this year um, by what are effectively Hindutva gangs, and I think the term Hindutva is really useful because the framing of this is kind of intercommunal violence of like, oh, Hindus attacking Muslims um, is correct only in the most technical sense, I think, because what it, what it calls up is this kind of quite colonial men mentality of these communities that have some kind of prehistoric, uh, you know, inability to live with one another, which is not the case at all in Leicester. Um, but these are quite specifically Hindutva gangs, so like Hindus who identify um, with a particular form of Hindu nationalism. And so what happened in, in September is that after a couple of instances earlier on the, in the year of attacks and a recent flare-up of violence, uh, I think in the week preceding, uh, community leaders from like Muslim and Hindu communities in, in Leicester had been appealing for peace, appealing for calm. Uh, so had the police saying they were going to look into things. Um, and I believe it was on the, on the 17th or the 18th uh, of September, a 200-strong um, group of uh, Hindu nationalist Hindus marched through Leicester, uh, through um, a street known to be Muslim majority, um, and in particular past a masjid, past a, past a mosque. And this was represented as being a kind of organic outpouring of outrage at um, the supposed targeting of Hindus by Muslim gangs. Um, 
But what it actually was doing was very consciously mirroring the kind of Hindu nationalist violence that we see in India. And so there was a really striking video in Leicester of, uh, you know, a local Muslim saying to the police, we have a 200 strong uh, group of people marching and chanting Jai Shri Ram slogans um, outside our masjid, that's at our mosque. Why aren't you doing anything? And the police obviously not knowing what that meant. And when it was explained that Jai Shri Ram means victory to the God Ram, obviously didn't register that as being a, a, a dog whistle either, as a call that's been used throughout India and appropriated by Hindu nationalists to justify the tearing down of, uh, of Muslim places of worship and homes. And so the reports indicate, and I have to say it's been hard to verify this, but I have seen like video evidence that is alleged to be from coaches going up from Wembley um, and from outside of Leicester, busing in Hindus specifically for this march outside of Leicester. As news of this travels, then um, Muslims uh, from around Leicester start traveling into Leicester, um, you know, conscious that there's going to be a clash, won't spend their community. Um, there's then some clashes, some violence, um, uh, the flags at the Mandar end up being burned. Um, and this is used to kind of say that, ah, see, like this is instigated by Hindu phobia, by Muslim violence, when actually what we're seeing really is, um, is organized Hindu nationalist cells basically bussing in people who are not from Leicester into Leicester to capitalize on the clashes that happened previously they've also orchestrated to cause trouble uh, and the trouble that they wanted to cause was exactly the kind of thing that happened the burning of the flags at the Mandar. this was then reported on in national and in Indian media um, as as the targeting of Hindus by Muslims um, and, and so that that's kind of what, what what happened in Leicester basically in summary a lot of what you're saying um seemed really familiar to what we were dealing with in the anti-fascist movement over the 2010s uh, with the EDL, you know, marching against mosques, calling from the midtown down, instigating, uh, you know, provocative marches in kind of specifically Muslim areas. And it's quite, you know, the EDL had nominally had, a, you know, Sikhs against Islam, Hindus against Islam sections, you know, and, and quite um, prominent leadership members who were South Asian as well. And I wondered, do you draw those explicit parallels there? And are there connections between kind of Hindu far right and the English, that section of the English far right? Um, I think in many ways, uh, what happened in Leicester was a kind of conclusive moment in, in, in drawing those alliances out. Um, so I, I definitely draw parallels in some sense. I think it's a relatively new phenomenon to have the kind of um, marching through the streets that we had in Leicester in the same way that we might be reminded of the EDL and, and Luton, for example. Um, but I don't think it's actually happened in Britain before. And I, th I think in many ways, this is a conscious attempt to kind of signal to far-right groups in Britain that there are alliances to be made. Um, and it's definitely paid off. So, for example, Tommy Robinson, who at least, you know, for me personally, I kind of had thought, right, his time has come and gone repeatedly. That's kind of it. Was interviewed um, in the weeks after what happened in Leicester uh, by one of the leading newspapers in India um, about his fight against Islamism, uh, and so it's a really interesting kind of co-constitution whereby these kind of fringe celebrity figures of, of, of the British far right, um, you know, who kind of wax and wane in terms of popularity, are able at a local level and a national level to regain some legitimacy by being cast in international media as if they're part of a global struggle against um, Islam. Yeah, I mean, Tommy's kind of, Tommy Robinson's, in a way, just used as a token, you know, like, here is this guy who has been fighting the fight for years and now he's speaking out and he's been repressed for his what he's doing and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but I think there's also, in, in terms of what you touched on with them, um, uh, with, you know, Sikhs and Hindus in, in the EDL. Um, I think there was even an isolated incident in the BMP, if I can remember that far back. Um, it was, for a time, a little bit easier for, um, for that section of the British far right uh, to draw on Islamophobia in Hindu and Sikh communities, primarily because of the traumas caused by the partition of the Indian subcontinent into first Pakistan and India, and then Bangladesh as well. Um, and drawing on those traumas that, you know, many, many migrants that came here lived through. So like my grandfather, for example, lived through the partition, you know, was 14, couldn't leave the house without, without carrying a sword with him, saw those violences. Now, was not susceptible in the same way to that kind of Islamophobia. Um, but I also think it's important to note that 
those kind of traumas, despite being papered over by the process of racialization that happened when you had diverse migrant groups drawn to Britain after the Second World War due to the need for um, for cheap labor, effectively, um, and the kind of consolidation of those communities as being what became known as black minority ethnic as taking part in political blackness, um, you know, forming alternative trade union structures due to the racism of trade unions. The, the British far right were able gradually to kind of chip away at that by the violences and traumas of partition that had happened. And there's that, I mean, and that, re- that kind of reception is, is one reception. And then there's another kind of reception, I suppose, um, typified by what I, I kind of alluded to earlier, the Blairite kind of intercommunity management, this kind of colo- colonial, let's all manage the, the migrants, the people who aren't really English. Um, and they've got some tensions because of what happened in their, in their foreign land. And we need to kind of, you know, make it harmonious again in, in that way. Um, and which I think ultimately puts puts the blame on on kind of non-white people being rowdy rather than a spe- specific ideology coming in and causing this kind of this situation. Yeah, it absolutely does that. I think it's important to recognise as well that that, that, that obviously happens in... Um, that doesn't happen equally to, to all migrants. And you can even see this in terms of um, who gets hired for what's jobs when, when you get that wave of migration. So uh, the Sikh community, for example, um, in, while in some senses it's, I think... Um, uh, according according to census data, one either the lowest or second lowest religion in in terms of uh, being likely to to be living in poverty. It also has one of the highest rates of kind of business owners, um, and there's a massive disparity there. But the kind of conditional preferment um, of of Sikh migrants, or for example, over Black African migrants or over Muslim migrants, is is kind of a factor in why that 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 casting on the one hand of these brown people as being unable kind of libidinally to, to stop fighting with each other is, is also, that narrative is happening concurrently with the narrative that says, okay, but Sikhs and Hindus actually are more on our side than the Muslims are, and actually we can still partially get them to align with us. So we've talked about Hindutva, um, and when I was doing research for this episode, I, I kind of saw some articles describe it as the relationship between Hindutva and Hindu, the Hindu religion as, as that between um, Christianity and kind of a, a kind of, I suppose, a evangelical American Christian fundamentalism, this, this kind of religion with a right wing bent. Um, how accurate do you think that is? And if it's not accurate or if it is, what are the kind of some of the main tenets of, of Hindutva? I, I think you could, you could say it's accurate in, in a very kind of broad surface level sense. I don't think it's necessarily that useful, though. And I think what hin- what Hindu nationalism, what we're calling Hindutva, comes out of um, are quite diff- are quite different kind of material circumstances than than the, the rise of kind of modern evangelical Christianity in in America, for example. So um, prior to colonization by the British, um, there wasn't a single kind of Indian nation. That that, that is a very modern invention. Um, and what, what the British do when they arrive is obviously divide and rule, um, but they also attempt to understand and render legible uh, Hinduism um, as a religion through a kind of Eurocentric lens of what that means. So in India, uh, prior to colonialism, Hinduism, it, it, it's very kind of heterogeneous. So like it's very localized the way it's practiced. There are different beliefs. There are different gods that are venerated locally. There are different traditions within it um, and what happens is the British attempt to kind of kind of standardize this in a way that is legible to them that they can understand um, this particular form of Hinduism that they kind of settle on um, comes from the the Brahmin caste so in India it, it's really important to this is the fact that in India the caste system is still extant and the caste system um, it is drawn from a particular interpretation of Hindu scripture, um, whereby uh, a particular varna, which is one of the four kind of bands um, that you're born into, is the one in which you're destined to play a role. So at the top of the hierarchy, you've got the Brahmins, for example, who are the priestly castes. Um, and at the very bottom of the hierarchy, you've got the Dalits, who are, uh, you know, colloquially were known as untouchables, and who are the ones that are kind of solo, that they don't even have caste status. And the Brahmins, who are kind of the, the priestly caste, um, 
definitely want to institute caste hierarchy, you know, and cement it further. And the British don't really do anything to challenge that, obviously. And as the British take over and through their kind of administrative uh, regulations, they standardised for forms of kind of caste oppression and caste ownership as well. So that gets calcified really under British rule as well. Um, and then you have the Indian ind- independence movements. So the first use of uh, Hindutva in that sense as an intellectual term um, dates back to the end of the um, 19th century, I believe, with a guy called Vinayak Damodar Savarkar. Um, who was actually active in the Indian independence movement. Uh, but he coined the term to distinguish between the Hindu nation-building project that he had in mind as part of resistance to British imperialism from the the other tendencies within the independence movement, some of which were much more secular, some of which were much more pluralist, and some of which were explicitly communist, for example. Um, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really gain traction um, until until much later. So we can properly date the usage of Hindutva, I think, to the 1920s, which is when we see the formation of the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, which is the RSS. Uh, and the RSS models itself um, on Mussolini's black shirts. It's inspired by the Nazis and their treatment um, of Jews in Nazi Germany. Um, and it, uh, Amit Wilson writes really, really well on this about how they uh, the RSS draws on this particular uh, form of Hinduism that's kind of been encoded by uh, by the British um, and builds on that to attempt to construct a pure Hindu Rashtra or Hindu nation. Uh, and to do this, they hark back to um, a mythical Bharat, uh, which is a name for a kingdom that was ruled by uh, one of the Hindu gods um, in Hindu scripture. Um, and, and the overriding narrative is... Um, that Bharat was a time of like paradise in, in many senses and a time of harmony between Hindus and the Muslim invaders had kind of destroyed all of that. And so actually the Hindu nationalist um, uh, nation building project is about getting the Muslims out so Bharat can be pure. And along caste lines as well, like the sense of purity is really, really key. The presence of any Muslims in India, just the very presence is experienced or seen as a defilement of the nation who's coded as like the sacred mother. So it's very much like a defiling by the kind of virile Muslim man of like the sacred, fertile earth of mother India. Um, the RSS don't really do much in terms of uh, the independence movement. They're not very interested in that. What they're interested in and what turns out to work, you know, over the last century quite well for them um, is basically what we could probably call cadre building. And so they're formed in the 1920s in Nagpur in, in, in Maharashtra. Um, and they focus initially on setting up what's called shakas, which are sort of school or education programs. It involves spiritual ed- education. It involves like military drilling. There's a sense that the Hindu the Hindu man has been emasculated and he's been too kind and too nice um, and he needs to make himself powerful again. And this is actually interestingly something that that that's, could almost be a direct quote from Anders Breivik's manifesto, by the way, who devotes quite a lot of space to this kind of Hindu nationalism. Um, and so the RSS kind of focus on building up appetite um, to cast out Muslims from India uh, and to build a pure Hindu nation. Um, it then attempts to it attempts to kind of attain some uh, electoral electoral success, um, and and it fails it fails quite badly at that in post independent India. Partly that's because they assassinated Mohandas Gandhi, who was you know the liberals know as Mahatma Gandhi, for compromising with Muslims, uh, and that doesn't win them many friends, uh, despite the trauma of partition. Uh, and that happens in 1948. So a couple of years later, the, the Bharatiya Jansang is, is kind of their first attempt at a political party. It doesn't work. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, in 1977, um, the Janata Party is formed. Um, it's another attempt at uh, a Hindu nationalist electoral vehicle in response partly to um, Indira Gandhi, um, who is who was a different kind of tyrant who was ruling India at the time. And in response to her centralization, the state of emergency, the criminalization of dissent, um, they kind of, they, they form a new political vehicle. Um, and it gained some more traction, um, partly because Indira Gandhi as a, as a female MP has leaned quite heavily into the language of Hindu nationalism. It's actually 
as part of the nation-building project of India, the construction of India is something that always has been, that has some kind of um, civic coherency that goes back far beyond British rule. It's actually quite useful. Um, and Indira Gandhi is really good at utilising, you know, the aesthetics of being, you know, a kind of strong woman, um, famously leading the nation, uh, to draw on, you know, Hindu nationalist folks, in particular um, in, in how she treats um, Sikh dissidents in Punjab in the 70s and 80s as well. Um, but it's not until it's not until 1980 that uh, that the Bharatiya Janata Party, the current BJP, is formed. And it's important to note that all of these come directly out of the RSS. So you, first you have the militia and the cadre building organisation, and then it's trial and error of these political vehicles. Um, and the Bharatiya Janata Party go on to gain more power um, until in 1998 they actually they actually take control of of government, and until 2004, um, they're then uh, routed by um, the UPA um, coalition government. Um, but with Narendra Modi, they find um, a charismatic leader, someone who's able to articulate something that speaks to a lot of a lot of Indians. Um, and on the basis partly of his charisma, and also by now of the strength of Hindutva and Hindu nationalism, which has been indulged not only by the BJP, but also by the nominally liberal Congress party. Um, and they're able to kind of build on that basically to, to get to the position where we now have a, an openly fascist government in India. Yes. I mean, uh, the Modi as well as a figure, he was like obviously a long-time member, lifelong member of the RSS as well. Um, and, the, and the policies he's pushed through are, are very much of the kind of um, Hinduism and kind of the, a certain trappings of a certain kind of state, uh, not just endorsed but enforced kind of culture as a kind of I suppose anti-colonial mechanism a way to stand India up in the world and all this kind of stuff um how is Modi you cut you describe the BJP as fascist and I'm not not going to dispute that at all but how is how was how Modi um governed in the in the uh how long has he been in power for eight years I think 2014 he came in yeah, yeah, it was 2014 he came in. I mean, the, the, the kind of key bit of context here is that um, before he became Prime Minister of India, like Narendra Modi was was considered a, a terrorist and not allowed to fly to, to many countries across the world, including at one point the United States of America, because when he was Home Minister in the state of Gujarat, he presided over um, the Gujarat genocide in 2002, um, which is um, basically a, a, a massacre of, of Muslims primarily. Um, by Hindus in Gujarat, um, in which he stated that his only regret was he, that he hadn't handled the media better. Um, when this happened in 2002, initially the kind of non-liberal um, uh, Congress party, you know, were, were castigating it, were saying, oh, this is awful that this has happened, you know, this man is a danger. But very quickly, actually, they capitulate to exactly the same language. This only goes in Modi's favour. And his narrative as well as being, you know, at one point the Chaiwala, someone who serves tea, rising to become Home Minister of Gujarat and then to the Prime Minister of India is a really powerful narrative. His first term um, really, I think, was, was focused... Of course, it was focused on the development of Hindutva and the normalization of Hindu nationalism, um, but it's also involved, um, basically, de deregulation has kind of been his, his bread and butter. What he did, what he did in Gujarat was, was effectively deregulation to invite corporations in, um, and that's exactly how he's continued to, to rule India. The most kind of um, glaring example of this comes actually in his second term. So in, in his first term, one of the big things Modi wanted to do was uh, to open up agriculture, which is a protected market to a degree in India. To corporations. Initially he's not able to do this uh, because agricultural policy is a matter of state government and not for federal government. Um, Modi runs quite much more explicitly in his second term on a Hindu nationalist. Um, Sorry, do you mind if I just follow up, follow up on that? Yeah. These, these Indian farm products I think you wrote about um, in Red mm -hmm. Pepper. Um, if, you, if you would just briefly like go through if you could go through that episode, because it is really instructive about how Modi was trying to govern and also the kind of forces of opposition with India as well, which I feel like oftentimes we, on an anti-fascist podcast, we talk about the fascist elements and we, we rarely talk about the anti-fascist elements or the opposition to the fascist government. Um, so, yeah, I think that's useful to talk about as well. Yeah, yeah, we can, yeah, we can definitely talk about that. So, um, effectively, in India, what you, what you had... Um, 
was uh, what was called the Mundi system. So Mundi just means market. And the Mundi system was that you would establish markets and in a certain perimeter around the markets, certain regulations would be in place. Minimum support prices for certain crops were there to, to, make, to kind of try, try to build towards um, self-sufficiency in terms of food. And effectively, like, this Mundi system had actually been eroded long before Modi, um, primarily through um, actually the, op the opening up in, in, in 1991 um, of, of India, the, the liberalization of the Indian economy, uh, meant that certain welfare measures that had been encoded into Indian agriculture uh, were deemed uh, unfair in terms of global competition. So subsidies that were being provided uh, for farmers, um, regional credit in initiatives, all of that was rolled back um, not just at the behest of different Indian politicians and of different corporations who wanted to make inroads, but also at the behest of the World Trade Organization and the World Bank. Um, and so actually by the time Modi gets into power, the Mundi system, um, which had these protections um, that mediated between firms uh, and small-scale farmers, was only really excellent in a few states, including Punjab, um, Uttar Pradesh and, and Haryana, um, in the Northwest primarily. Um, and so it was kind of the last bastion um, of some kind of state-regulated agriculture. Um, what had happened under the Congress party, Manmohan um, uh, Singh, uh, in the 90s, was that India shifted from attempting to become food self-sufficient to opening up to globalization. Uh, and at that point, it's very, um, it's open to um, global trade imperatives, you know, would much prefer, for example, that India just produce tropical crops um, that it could export to the global north, and then paid and imported staples like grain. Um, and that's kind of the, the reorientation of, of agriculture that's, ha that's happening in India from the 90s onwards. Um, but when Modi gets into power, there are still these protected enclaves um, that make it quite hard. And his allies um, in this, um, some of the, the biggest billionaires in the world and in India, from Reliance, from the Adani Group, from the Adani Corporation, uh, they are also members of, of the RSS. Lots of them. So, you know, they have that ideologically um, and culturally they share a background. So when Modi gets into power, he wants to get rid of the, these final welfare protections for farmers so that um, firms and corporations can directly um, uh, negotiate uh, with farmers. So there's no legal recourse um, if a big corporation screws over a farmer or a laborer. Um, and also the removal of minimum support prices, which guaranteed that there's a kind of like um, floor below which prices cannot go for certain crops. Um, that was going to be abolished. Now, Modi, um, basically, before COVID, is trying to incentivize um, uh, states to take up this legislation um, by offering them certain government grants if they do it. So basically, you'll get more money fund public infrastructure if you just kind of privatize the remaining agriculture. It doesn't really go anywhere until COVID hits. He's able to force it through um, uh, the, the legislature, uh, the Lok Sabha, which is equivalent of the House of Commons, I guess. Uh, he shuts down the, the Rajya Sabha, which is the equivalent of the, of the House of Lords due to COVID, and rushes it through. Um, and then you have an incredible site of resistance from farmers and laborers in particular not just in Punjab and Haryana and Uttar Pradesh, but, but all over India. Um, so the biggest strike in recorded history that India likes to do every five years or so uh, is, is recorded. Um, there's, there are a few kind of like uh, surroundings of the city of Delhi by tractors, by farmers that have come in from all corners of India. There's mass protests, and then there's a year and a half occupation of the highways into Delhi, which is completely insane. I can't think of anything the British Trade Union could do on that scale like can you imagine just think about how how long a year and a half is to be in a road for do you know what i mean it's uh, crazy yeah it's absolutely crazy um and what what's more crazy is that on Modi's side is not just the indian billionaires that have privatized agri-logistics and ports who stand to make huge amounts of money uh, from their attempts to digitize food food procurement from far, farm to fork um but also like all of the countries of the global north that benefit from, from globalization, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, all of these institutions. Um, and it's the trade unions and the farmers and laborers that managed to put a stop to it, um, which is fantastic. Even at those sites, though, uh, it's important to recognize as well that 
the caste divisions whereby a lot of the farmers are jat, landowning peasants, uh, and a lot of the labourers, mazdoors, um, are, are lower caste, um, and, and, and are, are kept from being able to farm communal land, are kept from being able to own property in the same way as, as the people that they were marching shoulder by shoulder with. Uh, to the extent that in 2013, um, in Nagar, uh, there were you know, Hindu nationalist riots against lower caste Muslim Dalit labourers, and one of the politicians uh, implicated in that went on to be one of the most important leaders in the in, in the Kisan and Dola movement in the resistance against the bills. Uh, so you had someone who is complicit, uh, allegedly, in calling you know for, for genocide against Muslims, for violence against you know lower caste Dalits. At the same time, in, in this period, kind of rallying the troops and calling for the labourers uh, and the and the landowners to to unite against a common enemy. So I suppose. Just going back to the UK, like one of the responses, there's been multiple responses to what happened in Leicester and, and to this idea of Hindutva um, in the UK. Um, and one of them was, of course, um, the Henry Jackson Society kind of sent in one of the top researchers to say there was actually no problem with this at all. And, um, you know, it, it really was a cricket match. Or it really was Muslims being rowdy or whatever. And, you know, it kind of just emphasised to me the the deep links that there are between the British establishment and the BJP. You know, we have a a, a candidate for a Labour Labour long list or a shortlist for MP who's literally a member of the BJP. Uh, you know, if he was a member of any other party in the UK, he would not be allowed to run as a Labour. Would not be allowed to be a Labour member or whatever. Um, there are also kind of deep links between the the Tories and the BJP and the RSS as well, and kind of funding from um, kind of prominent. Uh, business people and all this kind of stuff. And I wondered, um, you know, now we have a, our first Hindu, uh, first person of colour prime minister um, as well, which is, which is one more factor. Um, the British state has this kind of very uncomfortable relationship to India. You know, there's this, re, this rebalancing of of the, of the power dynamics in the relationship. India is this emerging market, um, emerging power, uh, Britain as this kind of the old colonial master. How do you feel that the British state is, will be handling these kind of this kind of ideology, and how does it relate to India more generally? I mean, in many ways, it's complex because I, th I think that one thing that we need to realise is that it's not. I don't think we can necessarily view this as an easy thing of like, oh. Tories, they're right wing, of course they love the BJP. I think that's a flattening of, of what's actually happening. I mean, in, just in terms of, um, uh, of Hindu nationalist organising in, in Britain, um, the HSS, which is a Hindu Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the international branch of the RSS, who mainly run like shakas at educational institutions, um, they set up their first uh, international chapter in Nairobi in, when was it? 1947 um, and they have been organizing in Britain for longer than the current ruling party of India has existed so in it's in the it's in the 60s that someone called Mananiya Chandrasekhar Raja Satya Narayanji is tasked by the head of the RSS with setting up shakars in Bradford in Leicester in Birmingham and in London um, in 1964, you get the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the World Council of Hindus established by the RSS, which is basically a world council of their shakas, of their educational institutions throughout the world, um, which they successfully establish in, in Hindu communities. Um, I believe that this, this um, Vishwa Hindu Parishad is directly referenced again by Ms. Brevik. Um, and the HSS is formally established in 1966. In 1974, in Britain, it becomes a registered charity. Um, and it begins to, Amit Wilson again uh, and South Asian Solidarity Group have done a lot of really important work around the takeover of community centres and of mandos by the HSS or by affiliate organisations. Um, and it's worked in one sense. Um, at that kind of street level, at that community construction level. Uh, and it's important, I think, for us to note that it's while what we're discussing is a fascist ideology engaging in building CADA, we're also talking about the construction from the experience of people who are just seeing a new sports group set up or a new community centre being run better. That's also just the construction of community that, you know, uh, a lot of people, particularly working class migrants, you know, are in need of 
having been alienated by you know the, the labor market and existing in, in a white supremacist nation like Britain. So it's very when we start to critique these things, we're going to come up against a lot of resistance. Um, but so at that kind of like localized level, you've got the shakas of, of the HSS. Um, more broadly, though, in in terms of the, the relationship between India and Britain in terms of trade, well, I think the case of um, Jagdar Singh Johal is instructive. So after Brexit, uh, a, a, a trade treaty with India um, was prioritised as being um, a potential kind of golden ticket um, economically um, following what's obviously happened economically following Brexit. Um, and what this has meant is ultimately not just capitulation to the kind of ideological demands um, of the um, capitalist Hindutva elite that are ruling India, um, but also a- active complicity in, uh, with that. And so Jagdar Singh Johal, who's a, a British national, a Sikh dissident, who has been documenting um, uh, online the, the genocides and the disappearances against Sikhs in the 70s and 80s in India, um, he was... Um, abducted uh, by plainclothes officers, uh, tortured, he says, and um, it's been held now for five years on spurious charges uh, with no evidence presented. And we know that the reason that they have to happen is because a tip-off that was provided by security services, by British security services. Similarly, we know that the dawn raids that happened on the West Midlands 3 several years ago, where their extradition was demanded, um, a tip-off for that, you know, came from West Midlands Police, and they also conducted the dawn raids. They were going to be sent to India um, and, and trialled for, for violence against Hindu politicians that there was no evidence they'd taken part in. Um, so the British state is already, already very actively colluding and sending its own citizens to India to prop up um, the image of Muslim and Christian and Sikh dissidents being the reason that... Um, that India is the way that it is, the reason that there's so much poverty, the reason that there's so much discontent. Um, so there's active complicity in that. Now, it also that hasn't just been happening through the Conservative Party. Um, we've got people like Barry Gardner, for example, in Labour Friends of India, who um, wanted to meet Modi and was stopped from do, stopped, only didn't do so because of protests by South Asia Solidarity Group and other human rights groups. Um, and he's someone you know who has praised Modi on, on the election. Um, we see this in the Labour Party in terms of the, the quite organised uh, attempts and successful attempts to roll back on expressing solidarity with the Kashmiri people who are being occupied. Um, we also see it in, you know, the um, the anti-Labour leaflets that were being fielded in Harrow East and in Leicester and elsewhere, um, you know, widely believed to have been funded uh, by the RSS through some of its affiliate organisations here. And if you look at some of the affiliate organisations here, actually, there's a lot of money being moved and not a lot of clarity. Um, so we have these you know, front organisations that are, are, on the one hand, able to, uh, to, to, to bring money for, from the organised RSS and disperse it to local um, kind of political climates at a local level, um, and also who are able to raise funds from the British public and funnel them towards people complicit uh, or, or actively pursuing Islamophobic Hindutva violence as well, as happened in Gujarat in 2002. We've then got the kind of trade imperative, um, that you know, the kind of neoliberal consensus that the Modi and um, Boris Johnson and then Rishi Sunak and for that matter Keir Starmer very much buy into so there's complicity on that level there's the added layer of um, uh, Priti Patel being affiliated with the RSS quite explicitly um, but there's also the fact that um, Rishi Sunak is um, married <laughs> to someone who is incredibly wealthy in India the daughter um, of, a, uh, of I believe a billionaire in India um, and Rishi Sunak's father interestingly isn't uh, an, an uncritical initially supporter of Modi. In fact, initially, um, I think he, in Modi's first term, uh, he made some public statements about the importance of pluralism. There were then sanctions that were threatened uh, on the charity arm of his business, and he has endorsed uncritically since then Narendra Modi. So it's not just a case of Rishi Sunak maybe ideologically having an affinity. I'm not sure Rishi Sunak cares about that very much at all, to be honest. But there is a case that his father-in-law's economic interests are tied to... Um, are tied to Narendra Modi at this stage and they're tied to the RSS. And I, I think we should be able to say openly that that is a kind of economic um, uh, means by which things can be manipulated rather than leaning into the potential of like, oh, there's an Indian in charge of Britain. 
maybe he'll do what Indians want. Um, it, it's, we're not making that kind of identitarian argument, right? We're making a very clear argument about like economic interests that are manipulable. Something that I kind of noticed when I was doing reading for this is the kind of emergence of this uh, online army of, um, I mean, everyone's a bot nowadays, but like I suppose bots, trolls, dedicated online tweeters who just do nothing but tweet about Hindutva and attack Muslims and people speaking up as well. Um, and this isn't kind of a, a particularly new thing. You know, we saw it with the alt-right. We've seen it with various different kind of online reactionary kind of um, emergencies, instances. Um, what role do you think this kind of online activism uh, plays in kind of bonding together a kind of global Hindu nationalism? I think that's a really, really interesting question because I think it's oper my analysis of it is that it's operating quite differently to how I think what you call swarms in, 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 in your brilliant book, um, the Internet Far Right, in terms of how that works for uh, for you know what the white white nationalists or the British Far Right or or, or the American Far Right. Um, with those, it's much more a kind of it forms a cohering function. Um, in terms of what that does for Hindutva, um, the context is so massively different because Hindutva is in government. Like Hindutva has control of the state. Like there are in India, there are lynchings of Muslim, lynchings of Muslims. There is what's been now called bulldozer politics, which is just a wanton bulldozing of masjids, of mosques, of Muslim um, settlements, um, as well as a kind of tearing down. Um, you know, since since the Babri Masjid at Ayodhya, um, which was one of the big events 30 years ago that catapulted um, the BJP to popularity with this demolition that they planned of, um, of a masjid. Um, all of that kind of material dispossession, as well as the occupation of Kashmir and the internment of dissidents and journalists and the restricting of citizenship to, uh, to non-Muslims outside of India and the detention centres that are being set up in West Bengal to criminalise Muslims and say that they're all uh, undocumented migrants from across the border of Bangladesh. Like, um, materially, they're in power. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that it, it's trying to cohere something in that sense. What I think they are trying to do is very obviously like harass uh, individuals um, and organisations offline for a start, um, but also more broadly, um, and the function of it is to try to generate uh, among white people who don't really understand what's going on um, a kind of false consensus. What it is doing um, is trying to, to give the impression um, of a kind of coherent uh, worldview whereby Hindus are under attack. So I think it's really important that we see this kind of online trolling or, or bots or abuse as part of something that is going to lead to material action globally. And we've got indications of what that might be already. In um, in 2019, um, uh, Trupi Patel, who's the president of the Hindu Forum of Britain, um, which is... Uh, you know, HSS affiliated and the National Council of Hindu Temples, which is also informally HSS affiliated, accused the Labour Party of being structurally Hindu phobic, um, which is language I think that we recognise. Um, and we know there was a meeting between um, Bob Blackman, the Tory MP, who's um, virulently, virulently pro Modi, um, and um, the person who started the campaign against anti Semitism. Twitter account. Uh, nominally, the meeting was about caste because also, uh, you know, Hindutva mobilizations managed to successfully kind of kill off an attempt to encode caste um, uh, in, in the Equalities Act in Britain, uh, stating that it wasn't necessary because there's no such thing as caste here, uh, which is untrue. Um, but nominally, in a meeting to discuss that, it was also discussed how what was needed was in the same way that the campaign against anti Semitism had helped to get the IRHA definition of anti-Semitism accepted in political parties and in educational institutions to the point at which any critique of it could be cast as racism, the same could be done effectively with the term Hinduphobia. So Hinduphobia, I want to be really clear, is not a thing. Like in Britain, Hinduphobia is not a thing. Um, people are not hated on the basis specifically of their Hindu religious beliefs. Um, by the white majority. That is not how they are racialized. Primarily, it is a result of, of being people of colour. Often, it's a result of actually perceived proximity to Islam. Um, 
that that is kind of where, where that comes out of. Um, the attempted construction of Hindophobia is going alongside the attempted construction of kind of pure Hindu subjects. Um, and that means that any critique of a, a nation that aims to provide for Hindus what Israel provides for Jews is going to be seen as, be, as being Hindophobic and cast as racist. So these kind of bots and stuff online fulfill numerous functions. I think, I think the first is to harass dissidents offline. Um, the second is to pave the way um, for this kind of a consensus emerging, um, which would obviously directly benefit the Indian states uh, and the forces of a Hindu fight in Britain. The third, I think, is also just chaos. I think, like, in the same way that it's, you know, impossible to have, like, genuine discussion about various things that have material um, material effects, like, uh, much like Israel, that, that is the goal of, of, of what those networks are doing online, too. But also, in terms of India, like a lot, of the way that uh, that mob violence is is kind of orchestrated is often, you know, through WhatsApp groups and stuff, right? So like that is also part of like the online organized Hindu right is 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 the fact that you know you have um, people Indians in Britain, you know, who are relatives and who are linked to people who are um, who are in India, and that kind of two way misinformation. So I suppose coming. Coming to a close, um, you know, just thinking about the long history of Hindu nationalist organising in the UK and the long history of Hindu nationalist organising in India and the fact that it's instituted in government and wields state power and the fact that, you know, this, the British state is has got all these kind of compromises and links with this, with this movement too, it can seem quite, um, you know, disheartening uh, thinking about how to oppose this kind of stuff, especially because you raised it right at the start, and I thought it was a really interesting point. Oftentimes, as kind of white anti-fascist movements or as white anti-fascists, there's a there's a kind of feeling that this is not our business. You know, this is not something that we need to get involved into, um, either because there's this kind of liberal notion that you know this is for Hindus and for for for, for people of color to sort out themselves, and white people should leave it well alone because then we'll be telling people what to, telling black people, brown people what to do, or it's a kind of well, we have our set British far right and that's what we're concerned with and that's all that's to be concerned with. And I feel like obviously both those, uh, both those attitudes are, are really deeply problematic and wrong. Um, how do you think we can kind of forge these links between, I suppose, the white anti-fascist movement, the UK anti-racist movement and uh, I suppose organising against this in India and here as well? Like, it seems quite difficult thing to do yeah um i think it i mean it is, it is, a, it is a difficult thing to do like there's no there's no choice about it and i think the kind of the kind of it's slightly boring but i'm going to say it anyway i think the, the most the most the most important thing is for you know the anti-racist movement or, or the white anti-fascist movement specifically to to get educated about exactly how these networks are operating and how they have been operating um I think that's in particularly necessary given the impending confluence of groups like, you know, Patriotic Alternative, for example, and, and like the HFS. Like um, a couple of years ago, it would have sounded insane to say that, oh, potentially, you know, um, white nationalists or kind of racist civic nationalists in Britain are going to want to partner with people campaigning for a pure Hindu homeland. Like what do those two things have in common? Um, but we've seen in terms of uh, the reaction to Leicester, um, and in particular, preceding that, um, how how the British far right, um, parts of the Sikh community and parts of the Hindu community, as well as the organised, um, you know, Hindu nationalists, have have found kind of common ground uh, and, and outrage around the way that the grooming gangs narratives have been have been pushed and been portrayed. Um, and so I think that like there is there is a hell of a lot of education and conversation that needs to happen to understand how how these different parts are moving and why. Um, I think that that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, I think we do need to shake off that kind of long shadow of what we could call like identitarianism, I guess, the kind of stay in your lane kind of thing. Um, and that, you know, that, that sense that actually like this is not, this is, it's not that you have your kind of like white people fighting white fascists and brown people fighting brown fascists. Like, that's never worked either. Um, 
but I think in order to get to that, like there's going to have to be a lot of a lot of relationship forging um, because these things are extremely complex. Um, and I've kind of been slightly on tenterhooks here talking about the Hindu nationalists in Britain because I'm so conscious of how easily that can spill over uh, into narratives that have their roots in, in in racism. You know, an example of this that I found is that like even you know some people saying to me, oh. We never had violence in Leicester like this before. It's all of the new Indian students that have come over. Like, I'm nervous about those kinds of, you know, unevidence identifications. Or someone was saying to me, oh, there's been some migration from this particular part of Gujarat recently. Um, you know, and it may be that there are overlaps with those particular things, but I'm very nervous about, you know, people like myself because there's so few people in invited to engage essentially in kind of these anti-fascist conversations to be given kind of blanket um authority to pronounce what's actually happening because the reality is that like that there is there is a lot more work to be done to identify exactly how this is happening exactly where how the money is coming through um and exactly what it's building towards um i think the encouraging thing is that there are people that have been working on this for a long time actually and the south asian solidarity group um has been doing really vital and, and incredible work like with with not massive amounts of support um you know over Modi and over um over the kind of right rise of um successful establishment of shakas and um hindutva networks in britain um definitely like as a collective like they are the people to kind of go to in terms of like learning more um and you know, there's a lot of writing out there by people like Devesh Anand, by Amrit Wilson, um, that's worth reading as well. But I think I think the way forward has to sort of be trying to forge coalitions of people who have been doing this work for a long time with the active kind of militant, but primarily white anti-fascist movement, so that when we see things happen like they did in Leicester, we're able to differentiate between that and what happened a few weeks later in Smedic, which was about uh, a Hindu speaker who had been disinvited and then a counter-protest by local Muslims going ahead anyway and that becoming clashes. Like, those nuances needing to be teased out and then figure out what the response needs to be, what the reaction needs to be, that can only happen with people who, like, at least share, like, a language and a cultural register with that, right? So there has to be that dialogue because at the same time it can't just be that same group of people, brown people, who's then also going to try and show up and sort shit out either, right? Um, the final thing is, absolutely just resist the use of the term hindu phobia absolutely do not tolerate it anywhere um because it is going to become i think much more quickly than we realize a common refrain and very quickly it's actually going to be used to kind of shut down any political debate shut down any kind of academic tenure uh, and that has to be resisted like unfortunately like as much online as it does like within our communities um and also within the within the political spaces that we're active in Okay, I'm going to finish up with this um, this quite insightful quote from a, a local Labour Leicester councillor on the on the recent uh, uh, recent uh, clashes or whatever you want to say, uh, a person called Sharman Rahman, um, and they say, "You've got a lot of young people with very little opportunities. If you take away opportunity, you take away financial stability, and you take away hope. It means that when you are confronted with an ideology such as in Hindutva stuff that's coming over here, it's more likely that young people cling on to it." And I, I think, you know, just going off what we were talking about, um, the kind of interaction between different movements, another interaction that needs to be placed is the kind of, I suppose, more generalized community organizing and, and kind of class solidarity building work, um, such as, you know, renters unions and a whole range of different stuff um, that can build a different kind of a kind of counterweight um, organizing force um, within these towns and cities. Um, uh, you know, saying this, you know, we'll, we're likely to see a kind of period of massive decline in Britain, along with a kind of general uh, kind of crash in the climate conditions, increasing and in increasingly horrible weather and climate conditions around the world and in the UK, which is all very bleak. Um, so in this kind of era of massive alienation, um, that, you know, whether you're on the left, on the right, uh, just not a political person, you everyone is feeling it and everyone has different reactions to it. How do we, you know, confront far right movements that seek to exploit this feeling of of uh, bleakness? Mm, I think it's a really, really, really good point. I think one of the things that struck me um, was that, 
when with the outbreak in, in Leicester was that maybe a, maybe a month or two earlier, I'd written an editorial for Red Pepper um, about the political climate, um, in which I said that um, you know the economic conditions that we were approaching, you know, are, are the social and economic conditions in which riots happen, in which uprisings that are referred to as riots happen, and I think what maybe I forgot, and I think what on the left often we do forget, is that there's no guarantee that those kinds of uprisings are against the forces of capital, that, you know, historically those uprisings have been as much against other minoritized communities, um, you know, as, as much as they have been towards towards the state. Um, and so I think we, that kind of old refrain of like crisis providing an opportunity is, I think, one that we need to be so wary of for that reason. I think one thing that I would say is that I think, you know, there are levels of, of organising to combat that, you know, specifically within South Asian communities, whether it's through different provision initiatives or different clubs. One of the difficulties is obviously the shakas fulfil this function. Like that is what they do is like they, they, they kind of combat alienation by doing like sports training, meditation retreats, um, after school clubs. Like that is what the that is what the HSS has been really effective at doing. And so I think probably it's about establishing alternative sites of combating that, that alienation. Um, that can look like, um, like you were saying, you know, renters organizing, it can look like, you know, radical trade union organizing. Um, if that's gonna be the case, of course, um, it means that there's gonna have to be a big shift in how we speak about things like borders or like identity politics or like, uh, you know, I think this rising tide of like class reductionism that we're seeing in the labor movement is definitely something is going to need to be combated if you want to hope to bring in more people of colour into that movement. Um, outside of the kind of renters unions and trade union movements, like, you know, we had, we had, you know, flawed as they were during the pandemic, we did have the rise of mutual aid groups that also did life-saving incredible work. Like I saw Islamophobia and transphobia kind of broken down through collective provision. You know, I saw people who at the beginning were in favour of means testing become police abolitionists six months on. Like political education can be at its most effective when it's forged, when it's forged through struggle. Um, and I think that obviously ties into a lot of work that is already happening undoubtedly in Leicester um, and in other places as well. Um, so I, I think this, this, the simple answer is on the one hand kind of community organising um, that is effective um, uh, and on the other hand um, political education that is accessible. Um, those are the two things that you know combat alienation um, as well as spaces of collective joy if you can bring people in. That's always the, the TWT tagline if you like. Yes. Uh, and I'm glad you ended the ended the answer on joy because I'm not feeling much of it these days, to be honest. So, um, okay, great. Thank you uh, for the conversation. This has been super insightful for me and super interesting. Um, and I'm saying that having read a lot of stuff already on this on this topic. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Um, have you got anything you you want to plug anywhere you want to direct people to? Uh, in the meantime. I am an editor and sometimes write for Red Pepper magazine. It's a socialist magazine that's been around for over 25 years. Um, if you can support us, um, we're an internationalist socialist magazine and um, it's delivered to you four times a week as well as our, our archive and access to Red Pepper events. Uh, look us up. Um, the World Transformed is uh, one of those spaces of collective joy and political education and community organising um, that we were talking about um, a little earlier. Um, if you would like to support that, um, you can look us up, you can become a supporter for a couple of quid a month, um, but at the very least, come along to uh, to our festival um, in Liverpool next year. Um, I will also just want to give a shout out to South Asian Solidarity Group, um, you know, who many of whom are much more knowledgeable than I, many of whom have been working for a long, long time. Um, um, keep an eye out because soon we'll be approaching the 30th anniversary um, uh, of the destruction of the Barbary Masjid at Ayodhya, um, uh, which was 30 years ago. It's one of the events that catapulted the BJP to, to prominence and to power. Um, and 30 years on, we're still seeing masjids demolished in India, uh, and we're seeing a rising tide of um, Islamophobia once again in Britain too. So your solidarity, we appreciate there. And finally, um, it's not got massive amounts of attention from the press, and when it has, it's been fleeting. But Jagdar Singh Johal is a Sikh political prisoner and British national who's entered his fifth year uh, of arbitrary detention. That's according to the UN arbitrary. Um, the 
British state as um, obfuscating its responsibility. Um, it was complicit in uh, sending supposed information to the Indian state that allowed him to be detained um, on spurious grounds, uh, and it's refusing to take its responsibility to send citizenry seriously. In the same way that with Nazanin Zagaya Ratcliffe and with Shamim Begum and with the Windrush generation, we've seen British citizenship become conditional on certain processes of racialization. That's once again happening. If, if it could happen to Jakarta, it could happen to any of us. So um, just tweet using the hashtag FreeJuggyNow um, and look it up. Make sure you're informed. Um, and if you can, write your own piece. Uh, and also by Dog Section Press's book, The Post Internet Far Right. It is a fascinating read. Damn. Thank you very much. That's very touching. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, uh, one announcement from me, we're going to do another book club. Um, it's going to be on a book called Fractured. We had the authors on the podcast. It's about the hatred of identity politics. It's a really, really good read, really important read. Um, so just look out for when I announce that. And uh, thank you very much. Join us for KiteLine, a weekly radio program on Channel Zero Network that focuses on issues in the prison system. With over 50 episodes already released, you can hear informative and riveting stories about the impact of prisons on people both inside and outside of the prison walls and how they fight back. KiteLine is intended as means of communication between people across prison walls. Our goal at KiteLine is to amplify the voices of those within the prison system while encouraging dialogue with those on the outside. Hear us on the Channel Zero network and visit our website for more information or previous episodes at kitelineradio.noblogs.org.